trade flows with DP World. Our global team of 100,000 plus across 73 countries is reshaping supply chains by integrating infrastructure, tech and local expertise from the factory floor to our customer's door. You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Do you feel it in the air? Oh yes, I'm sure you do. It's the build-up to TPM24 in Long Beach, California. Today, I'm running through the biggest news stories ahead of the biggest supply chain event of the year with JOC's Mark Zaccone and Lodestar's Gavin Van Maal. And then we're turning to the coal chain and looking at some very innovative emission savings initiatives, collaborations that may be proved well, that we can all get by with just a little help from our friends. My friends on this occasion being DP World's decarbonization expert, Piotr Kanoka and Reefer Guru. It's Dirk Hoffman. The reality is we've been doing the same thing for nearly a hundred years. And the legend now is when Birdseye was creating their cold storage facilities in the US uh, in the 1930s, they set their facilities and then their operating protocols at zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is the closest to minus 18 degrees. So for 100 years, we've been freezing down at a level to minus 18 degrees without any science. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Housework first. You can follow this podcast wherever you like to listen. That includes Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, and, well, loads more, including thelodestar.com, where you can also subscribe to receive it direct to your inbox. Coming up, we have a deep dive into the cold chain. And if you think moving the temperature dial towards warm for frozen transport sounds risky, please do stay tuned because I promise you it's not only achievable, it's just so, so logical. We'll hear why and all the latest on decarbonization collaboration when I'm joined by DP World's Piotr Knopka, Group Vice President for Global Decarbonization and Energy Programs and Dirk Hoffman, Account Director for Reef Supply Chain Services. But before we get to that, Let's look at what's coming up at TPM24 and what's in the news right now. And to explore these topics, I'm talking to two of supply chain's leading journalists who certainly know a little bit about all of these things. First up is Lodestar Managing Editor Gavin Van Marl. Welcome back, Gavin. Hello, Mike. Nice to be back. And joining him from the US is Mark Zaccone, Executive Editor at the Journal of Commerce. How are you, Mark? Good. Good to be here. Mark, if I may start with you, you guys at Journal of Commerce and S&P Global have quite a heavy workload getting ready for TPM24 in Long Beach, 3rd to 6th of March. Can you give us a flavor of the size of this event and what people can look forward to this time around? Well, we're, we're definitely tracking well, um, kind of meeting. So we're, we're expecting some pretty robust numbers. And uh, ultimately, I think we're most excited, particularly about some of our speakers, given what's been happening in the Red Sea. I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting in terms of geopolitical ramifications. So we'll be hearing from uh, Robert Gates on that. We're also going to be hearing from Ralph Hobbin Johnson, some other Jeremy Nixon. So we're going to have some major carrier executives. Uh, Union Pacific's president's going to be there. So really, there's a lot going on that, as, as you know, we're going to be discussing. So everything from Trans-Pacific service contract negotiations to kind of a, a big picture on capacity, demand, and everything else. I'm guessing uh, the Middle East will frame a lot of those TPM discussions. Have, have you been revising the agenda as the situation on the Red Sea changes? 
Yeah, we've had to. It's funny because I do the container outlook session um, that kind of sets the stage. And then the Red Sea popped. And for a while I was thinking, oh yeah, this is going to be a, a huge game changer. And now I kind of came back and I think it's going to definitely take out capacity in the short term, but we're still going to have a, a capacity issue probably when we get out of this or when we start seeing cargo back routed through the Suez. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, Mark. But uh, Gav, if I might turn to you, obviously the Red Sea is having this huge impact across global supply chains. How have you been covering this on the load star and what are your main takeaways in terms of how this is hitting shippers and forwarders on that key Asia-Europe shipping lane where diversions around the Cape of Good Hope are, are delaying shipments and we've seen some big pricing movements, haven't we? There we have. Well, I mean, as far as how we're covering it, it's, it, you know, it's a daily thing. It's up on the, it's the first story up on the whiteboard each morning. What's that, What's the latest in the Red Sea crisis? I mean, the effects are, are pretty well known, right? For this is now this, I'm talking about the Asia-Europe trade. It's an extra, going around the Cape of Good Hope is an extra 10 days sailing to ports in Northern Europe and an extra 15 to ports in the East Med. In terms of supply chain operations and containerized imports, I mean, it's not really as bad as one might expect, especially given that the, the memory of the Ever Given is still so fresh in people's minds. Do you mind if I just talk slightly about the sort of time lag? I mean, the first sort of widespread vessel dis diversions began in mid-December. So a vessel that was expected to arrive in North Europe around the first week of Jan and was diverted mid-December would now would be arriving around about the end of January instead. So what we were expecting to see was a load of bunching happening basically now for the first couple of weeks of February. But it really hasn't been as bad as people expected. You know, we're running a story publishing from my colleague, Mike, sorry. Basically, Hapag Lloyd had told Mike that they were looking at the carrier's hub ports of Rotterdam, Hamburg and Southampton, and that the yard utilisation there was around 55% in previous weeks, has now gone up to 80 to 95%. However, they also expect it to drop back down to around the sort of 65, 75% by as early as next week. So really, yeah, that's it. I mean, the fundamental fact is that demand is weak across Europe, and that includes the UK. And also, given that everyone saw this coming and they'd, they'd been through the Ever Given experience, a lot of forwarders were already warning their customers. I mean, one guy told me a couple of weeks ago that, he, that his company had gone into full, he called it full COVID mode. Right. And they're already warning there were going to be vessel bunchings and so on and so forth. And there's going to be a lot of activity at the port. So they were kind of ready for it, you know, and it's in that situation that they were prepared for it. And so far, it hasn't been that bad. I mean, it could all change. And I guess I, the other point there, Gav, is when the Ever Given happened, they were already, at, you know, fully utilized or, or thereabouts, whereas they've, they've got slack capacity at the moment in a lot of those hub ports. And, right. and I guess on the ships as well. Yeah, and adds to that the uncertainty, right? Because no one knew how long the Ever Given was going to get stuck there for. So you had that thing of a ship would turn up, oh, look, this has gone ground. Well, they'll refloat it within the next day. And then you had the cumulative effects of those days building on each other. Whereas for this situation, the decision's been taken a lot earlier. It's all been widely advertised. So everyone knows this is coming and everyone's then got an extra 10 days, two weeks to prepare for whatever the volumes may come. But like I say, I mean, so far, all the indications are that, there, that there's ample capacity to handle this surge. So what was going on with rates then, Gav, on Asia, Europe, particularly, and I'll bring Mark in it again on this on the Trans-Pacific, but as we were coming up to Lunar New Year, we, they rates softened slightly 
but we'd, we'd had a big increase before that. So if there was enough slack capacity in that system, was some of this a sentiment? I think it's just market correction. It's just, as I said, demand's weak. There's plenty of capacity. Most consumers in Europe are continuing to deal with the cost of living crisis. The German economy is in terrible state at the moment. And, you know, the extra costs that carriers will incur for the extra fuel and stuff can simply be recouped through BAFs. So there was a rate surge, yeah, and that was dictated by the sentiment. Oh, my God, the Suez Canal's blocked again. Oh, this is going to be like the Ever Given all over again. And that rate surge lasted for, for three weeks or so, and now it's coming off because you can't, when you've got such structural overcapacity, <laughs> the market determines where the pricing goes. Well, well, to both of you here, I mean, there's different viewpoints on this about how ongoing Cape divergence will impact global supply demand for container shipping as we move through the rest of the year. We come into the peak season, sort of late summer. Some analysts are saying divergence have vacuumed up all the excess capacity and we should be prepared for more rates increased later in the year. Other, others are saying there has been something of a pricing over correction. Obviously, there's other things to factor in, such as liner strategy, slow steaming, changes in the alliance system. First, from you, Mark, what's your view in terms of what we might expect later in the year? Uh, you know, I, I agree. You know, it's soaking up capacity. We're reporting much of kind of what Gavin's kind of alluding to in the sense of the, the European ports are not seeing it. I think to a degree that the carriers were able to avoid bunching. And that definitely has mitigated any type of bullwhip that one would expect, given partly, as Gavin noted, the reduced demand. We're seeing kind of a similar thing on, on the U.S. East Coast. The sense among whether I go in-house with S&P and talk to our geopolitical analysts or, you know, in conversations with the carriers and ex expectations, I mean, I feel like we've settled into like this is the new environment for the foreseeable future. So, I mean, as long as that takes capacity, I mean, I think the question now becomes when capacity re-diverts through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal, what kind of dislocation will we see then? And what we're also hearing is, you know, we're hearing surcharges put on other trades, citing kind of the Red Sea rising operational cost and equipment pull. That's going to be very interesting. I think kind of that dynamic, and I think we may not have seen that played out completely on some of the secondary trades. The Trans-Pacific is enjoying a little bit of a coming off a CNY pop, but it's already showing, at least on the spot rate, slowing signs of momentum. Yeah, it's, it's right. The Trans-Pacific and Asia Europe are showing very similar dynamics, apart from the fact that, that the demand isn't in Europe as it is, as far as I understand, continuing to hold up in North America. Mark, the shift that S&P Global have noticed in terms of cargo going into the West Coast and away from the East Coast in December and January on those port numbers. Panama comes into this, the Cape Divergent factors in this. On top of that, we've got the threat of union action at the Eastern Gulf Coast ports later this year. Are you expecting that trend to accelerate later in the year or, or do we have to wait for these long-term contracts to be decided before we know really yeah, I think we saw it in two phases. Once the uh, ILWU uh, ratified the contract and then you got a little bit of noise on Panama Canal delays, you saw some shift there. And then we'll see another shift most likely because we're, we're hearing about it, but it's not, you know, if you look at the peers numbers, looking at market share between the three U.S. coasts, West Coast isn't eating anybody's lunch yet. Or, I mean, they're, they're always having the dominance, but they're not gaining that much share. We'll start seeing it, say, in May and June when the new service contract cycles take effect. 
I think there's a lot of speculation there. I, I'm kind of of the mind that, you know, the numbers will show what it is. Ultimately, it doesn't, it's not like it's having a huge dynamic in terms of service contracts in the sense that you're, it's not like you're going to be paying a premium to go to one coast over the other because of some heightened risk. And, you know, I, I, I use that example because like, I think it fits in the same thing is like, you can look at the headlines and say, Hey, ILA has threatened strike action. This is like the sharpest rhetoric that we've had in 20 years. But, you know, when you talk to shippers and carriers, it's a consideration, but it's not a major driver of their decision making yet. There's quite a few little pushes, though, towards that West Coast, isn't there? Gav, did you want to come in on this? No, I, well, I was just wanted to ask Mark, as the negotiations sort of near, when he thinks logistics professionals and shippers might start to think about rerouting to avoid that. Right. Yeah. You're hedging it, but you're not, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to hear in the service contract tables like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm taking a huge amount of cargo and putting it because of my ILA concerns. At least we're not hearing that. And I think, you know, in terms of the timeline, in terms of what you're looking at, I mean, we've reported just a couple of days ago that the ILA is giving its local unions a mid-May deadline to complete port level talks, what we're hearing on the ground level is that, you know, it's coming down to salary and pensions and other benefits. So the risk isn't there, but all the signs are that things are continuing to move along. Uh, if I may pivot, let's have a look at some company news. The big M&A deal out there uh, this year waiting to be done is DB Schenker. Deutsche Bahn put its forwarding subsidiary up for sale in late 2022. Gav, who's registered an interest in buying D.B. Schenker by that 6th of February deadline. And, and why is Maersk getting all the headlines on this? Well, Maersk is getting the headlines simply because Mer it's Maersk, right? It's the old maxim that if you want people to read your shipping story, you either put Maersk rates or piracy in the headline and, you, you know, you double the number of readers. So there's been no official announcement as to who has registered interest. So this is rumour mongering of the highest order. We know Maersk because Vincent Clerk confirmed that during the recent results earnings that it would... I mean, he basically said, well, we're going to have to look at it, aren't we? We can't not look at it. Other names, DP World and AD Ports, just because whenever there's a purchase opportunity, those two guys are, are sniffing around. DSV, of course. The, the Danish forwarder, it needs to do another M&A because that's how its sort of corporate structure is built on a sort of relentless pursuit of M&A. And fascinatingly, was one, one of our uh, sources thought that it could be DSV backed by money from Saudi Arabia. So obviously they're in this joint venture thing at the Neon. Also, we think that the US integrators, UPS and FedEx might be looking at it. So that's that's a few names for you. I also have heard MSC. So we've, I mean, we've got all the heavy hitters. I, I'm, ones I'm not hearing are Amazon. No, I certainly haven't heard. And that would be I'm trying to think of a large scale logistics acquisition that Amazon's ever done. No, I was, I was just in the sense that we're running out of big names. We'd get a better headline with Amazon, to be fair. Uh, back onto Mask. <laughs> Maybe I'll use this for the podcast headline. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bit weird, wouldn't it, Gav? Mask buying. DB Schenker in the sense that it feels like it would be reverting back to, unless they could somehow swallow it, wouldn't they be going back to a, a standalone Damco style strategy? I mean, you would, the thing about the DB Schenker sale is, is how heavily politicized it is, because the reason for the German government to sell DB Schenker is to try and tackle the enormous debt mountain that Deutsche Bahn, the passenger rail network of Germany, has racked up. 
And this is this is the great argument why people think DSV won't get a look in because DSV has a history in its corporate acquisitions of shedding large numbers of work staff. That's how they do it, right? Did something like that happen in Switzerland? It happened at Panel Peanut, it happened at Agility, it happened at UTI, it happened, right? When they bought UTI back in 2015 or whenever it was. It happens every time you see the headcount. And now... Now, so the, the prospect of the German government selling the company to a private European company, whatever, selling a company to a private company, which then comes in and, and makes, you know, thousands of German employees redundant is you can see that that's politically indigestible. So you would imagine that the MERS, just to go back to the MERS rationale, you would assume that if MERS did buy, it would be in some kind of Damco type. DB Schenker carries on trading as DB Schenker with the existing staff. The reason for Merce doing it, by the way, is because its logistics and services division isn't doing very well, right? If you look at the latest results, you know, they talked about wanting a 10% growth in revenues and more than 6% growth in EBIT. This is for their logistics and services thing. Where they are at the moment is seeing revenues declining 15% and EBIT growing only by 3.2%. So a, a DB Schenker purchase could resolve that problem that Maersk has in that its its logistics stuff isn't growing as fast as it should do or as big as it should do. On your mention there of the integrators, Gav, and the political situation, wouldn't a purchase by a US integrator be totally unpalatable for, for the German government in that, on that basis? Well, I don't know about the German government because it just seems to be at sixes and sevens at the moment, but um, well, that's a good question. I suppose what you would have to look, and I haven't thought of that, I would sort of look at what um, happened at TNT after FedEx took it over, and, and that would be the past example. Wouldn't they want DHL to buy it? Well, DHL is the other thing. I mean, interestingly, it was just last week that the German government actually reduced its stake in DHL, again, trying to raise funds. I mean, it's this comes back to time and again is like how badly mismanaged Deutsche Bahn has been. And that's something that, I mean, I would never have said that 10 years ago, not even two years ago, I wouldn't have thought it was badly managed. But a lot of this stuff is all sort of starting to come out now. Gav, do we have a valuation on this? Low Star Premium, our base case valuation is 12.7 billion euros. Our upper range valuation is 15 billion euros. I mean, this is down, right? If you went back a year ago when the, when or a year and a half ago when the rumours of its sale were first coming out, you know, the valuation then was sort of 20 to 22 billion. So it's the valuation is declining. And that's not really surprising, is it, given the market? Okay, I've got two great guests from DP World coming up next, and we're going to start by discussing why making cold chains warmer, in fact, makes a lot of sense. So Gavin, Mark, to finish, when you look at the transition to sustainable supply chains, can you think of an initiative or a technology that gives you most hope? And on the flip side, what makes you most frustrated about our industry's green efforts? I don't know if it's frustrating, but I think for me, whenever I think about green efforts, the, really the big question I'm asking is, how are the shippers going to pay? Because I'm no subject matter expert when it comes to ship design or any type of technology. And I think that's going on its own. I think the real challenge is going to be the carriers finding a way to recoup these costs, particularly when we see so much talk about it. But when it actually comes to paying for greener services at the deal table, we're not hearing much of that. So I think for me, that's a very interesting challenge of how do you take on these huge capital costs and create a system that is recognized by the industry 
and provides enough transparency for folks to start taking on these costs. And Gav, to finish, an inspiring initiative or trend first, and then what gets your goat about the green transition? <laughs> so I'm going to give a big plug for TPM here because the one I really like, and you're going to you're about to discuss it, is the move to minus 15, which I see is sort of at the... Um, Oh, the, the Thomas Eskerson's running a session on it on the third day. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think the move to minus 15 is just, it's just an easy win, right? It's just a very simple win. Um, the one that I find sort of hard to get my head around is the, the, the whole sustainable fuel thing. So you've got the only option for an airline to reduce its emissions is to use um, SAF, right? Sustainable aviation fuel. However, that same stuff, is it, that's the same fuel that the carriers are offering to shippers. You know, you see these such and such has signed up to transport 20,000 TEU using green fuels. They have these green fuel programs in. So, But it's exactly the same thing. So it just seems crazy to me that you've got the shipping lines with such enormous fuel requirements basically coming in and cornering what is a relatively modest and limited supply of sustainable fuel, which would probably, from a green perspective, be much better deployed being in aircraft. So there's a frustration that some of this isn't very well planned. It's not. My frustration quite often is we get these press releases about a few trees or a few tons of green fuel, but it doesn't seem to be the collaboration. Then you're like, just get on and come up with some industry-wide efforts, which again, this minus 15 is very interesting on, on that level. I want to finish on a little positive. I'm very positive that 40% of all container ships on the order book are going to be capable of running green fuels. But as you say, they are cornering the market and sometimes some of that could be used better elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the bright spots, even puncturing my cynicism, is uh, you know a shipper case study that we're going to be doing at TPM centered around Microsoft. And you hear a lot of rhetoric about, we're doing this in our supply chain, this is the way. But I was impressed by their ability to not only calculate it and systematically reduce their carbon emissions, but then start putting the onus on their suppliers and moving that, that holistic effort beyond just their reach. So I actually think there's some very interesting stuff. But, you know, as Gavin mentioned, their stuff is focused primarily on air cargo fuel. And that seems at least achievable now in terms of some high value shippers being willing to pay more. Very positive. Mark Sacconi, Executive Editor General of Commerce and Gavin Van Mol, Managing Editor of The Lodestar. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for having me. Now, as trailed, we're looking at the coal chain, which will feature heavily at TPM24. And to do so, I'm delighted to welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Piotr Konopka, who is Group Vice President for Global Decarbonization and Energy Programs at DP World. Hello, Piotr. Hello, Mike. Good evening from Dubai. Piotr is joined today by Dirk Hoffman, Account Director for Reefer Supply Chain Services, also at DP World. How are you doing, Dirk? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you very much, uh, Mike. And I have to admit, I told my children I'm having an interview with Larry King today. But, Excellent. Uh, but, but I'll tell them, though, it must be related to you. La I think, is, is Larry looking younger than me now already? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's uh, start with you, mate. We will discuss electrifying ports, alternative fuels, and other efforts to decarbonize the supply chain a little later. But the project that has most electrified the journalists, certainly at the Lodestar, 
which also features its own session at TPM, is the Join the Move to Minus 15 Centigrade initiative. This was launched at COP28 in Dubai in November last year, and the companies that support us include Kuna and Nagel, Maersk, and MSC, and of course, DP World. So, Dick, what exactly is the move to minus 15? Well, thank you very much. And yes, it was an incredible event to be at COP28 and, and to, to launch this idea, the move to minus 15. And in a, in a nutshell, today, the majority of our deep frozen products are kept at minus 18 degrees Celsius, and we are telling the story that we should move it to minus 15 degrees Celsius because we can save an incredible amount of, uh, of emissions by doing that. So in a nutshell, it is a big idea and requiring a small change in the change in temperature how we store frozen foods. And what are the potential emission savings from pushing that temperature dial up, both generally and specifically in terms of cutting the carbon footprint of the global coal chain? Well, so we've had this study uh, that we support and uh, that's been launched by the University of uh, Birmingham, London South Bank University and the International Institute for Refrigeration. That's been working on the study and uh, we picked up on this as uh, TP World and thought this was a really valuable bit of research that's been done. And we thought that this is something that we would like to take to COP and to the wider world. This is something that we, we absolutely firmly believe that can really shift the dial. So just to answer your, your question more specifically, if we change this temperature from minus 18 to minus 15, that will give us a saving of roughly 17.7 million metric tons of carbon dioxide saving every year. And that's, that's massive. To put it in a way that, that's easier to, to grasp or understand, that's the equivalent of taking 3.8 million cars off the road. And if we can do that year on year, it will have a significant change in the world that we live in and the air that we breathe and, and most certainly on, uh, on the greenhouse gases that we contribute to, at least from a, from a transportation and, and storage perspective. As I mentioned on the, on the intro there to this project, everyone at the Lowestar is very excited about it because it, it just seems so obvious, doesn't it? Why hasn't this happened before? Mike, this is a, a a really great question, and I've I've worked in this uh, this side of the shipping and transportation industry for twenty five odd years or so. And when this question was first posed to me, or asked me, and I couldn't really give an answer. But the reality is, we've been doing the same thing for nearly a hundred years. And the legend now is when Birdseye was creating their cold storage facilities in the U.S. Uh, in the 1930s, they set their facilities and then their operating protocols at zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is the closest to minus 18 degrees. So for 100 years, we've been freezing down at a level to minus 18 degrees. And I would probably say at, at the time, without any science. So this is a custom that we've built into our supply chains, and it's basically stuck at that point. It, it has become the gold standard, and we are just saying we need to change the gold standard uh, for how we freeze product. I mean, that does seem quite bizarre, that. It was quite a random act. Okay, minus 18 and zero, that, that's, we'll just round it up. Is that sort of what happened well, then? 
Well, I, th I think that's, but I mean, I wish I was there. I probably looked like someone that could have been there in the 19, 1930s, but but no, that, that's you look the more way alive than Larry King. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, thanks. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. No, Mike, I think it's a, this is quite a, quite a big thing that we've been, been doing for a very long time. We've actually wasted almost a century of unnecessary carbon around the world by keeping things at, at minus 18 degrees. Now, there is, a, there is a, another cut point, and that's minus 12 degrees Celsius. And all forms of biological development that could lead to the spoilage of food stop at minus 12 degrees Celsius. So there is a, there is a reason to go lower than minus 12, but maybe that minus 18 is a stretch too far. And so the reason why we are saying that we should go for minus 15, it's the halfway point between minus 18 and minus 12. That three degrees should still be sufficient insurance should something go wrong during the, the transit or the storage of a product. So, uh, so we believe that that should really be the sweet spot and not minus 18. Derek, what are the storage practicalities and benefits of this? I've seen a claim that this shift would enable the deployment of more accessible storage technologies, which would reduce food scarcity. But but what does that look like in practice? And what are these technologies? Well, I, th I think the, the, the beauty of the story, really, is that you don't require any new innovation. You don't require any new investment. This is a, a mindset change. This is like dialing down your aircon at home or when you're dialing up your thermostat for eating. It is really a matter of putting a dial. Now, there are so many people involved in the supply chain of frozen products. So from the farm to the fork or from the field to the fork. So if you can imagine it as a, as a big relay race, handing over the baton, handing over the cargo from the manufacturing plant or from the farm, uh, it will go into cold storage or into a, a production facility, cold storage. It will be on a road vehicle. It will come to a port. It will go on a ship. Destination will go on a, into a port, into a warehouse, and eventually it will find its way into the retail sector. So during that entire chain, everyone is maintaining this minus 18 degrees Celsius. And that's where we need to make the change across the entire chain that you can get everyone involved in handing over that baton, that product from person to person to get to the uh, safely into the hands of the consumers. So I think the, the questions are from a technology perspective, not really a big change that we're expecting to see in, in that respect. From an investment perspective, not necessarily any big changes in so existing facilities should be absolutely fine to do this. We don't have to go out and buy new road vehicles or new containers or new ships, all the technology exists today as it is. It's a mind shift that we need to make. So what happens next? Uh, how are you getting more supply chain partners involved? What's the timeline? Can this become the new global standard? Well, that's that's absolutely the aim. This is where we want to, to end up. And in all honesty, we don't know how long it will take us to get to that point where we can change the global supply chain where everyone is involved to get to the other side. Um, but you've mentioned a few names earlier on of big companies that has already signed up and showed an, an interest. So it's from a U.S. perspective, we have two of the leading 
cold storage companies Lineage and Americold has shown an, an interest to join us in this move to minus 15. Uh, we have a couple of big American protein traders and suppliers of, of product that is joining us on this movement. And so we have the shipping lines. Uh, I think you've mentioned Maersk and MSC, CMA, ONE, Ocean Network Express, uh, Hapak Lloyd. They've already showed a big interest in in joining us and and getting momentum behind the story. And then, of course, we have Daikin, the, the biggest manufacturer of reefer containers, the Kunenagel Foundation, and then, of course, the Global Gold Chain Alliance, as uh, we consider already as a partner in this move forward. And, of course, this is not where we want to end. These were the initial parties that joined uh, the move to minus 15. And now we are taking that sort of step forward and beyond that point to say, well, we need a lot more industry partners to join us in this move. And if someone's listening to this podcast and they want to get involved, how do they do so? Well, at the, at the moment, we you can find us on the Join the Move to Minus 15 on the DP World website. There's a place where you can sign up. Hopefully, you will be able to provide some of my contact details after this uh, show as well, Mike. And uh, and I would love to be in touch with anyone listening to this and say, join us in this. Now, I think perhaps we were talking about technologies a little earlier. So it's from a technology perspective, very easy. From an investment perspective, it's not going to cost anything to change your supply chains in this. But we're also going to need the authorities to agree that this is something good. So from a food safety perspective, uh, we need to ultimately always show the end consumer that the food products that they buy is safe for them. And that's part of the journey is getting the authorities, the different authorities in the different countries. If there is legislation currently set at minus 18, we need to have those conversations with those authorities to make those sort of changes. Because it's no point... If you remember our little relay race, if only one person in the relay race doesn't follow the minus 15 idea, then it basically pushes everyone else back to minus 18. So people really do worry about food safety as well. My, my wife, for one, doesn't worry so much because if, if she, the use by signs on the food, and I'm not sure I'll get away with using this bit, and my wife might kill me. When they go past the use by date, she just takes the date off and waits for one of us to eat it. Mike, you're, 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 kill me. Mike you're sit, you are sitting there and you're looking as healthy as a butcher's dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I think you're, uh, I, I love your wife for that idea that she doesn't get too hung up about expiry dates. And this is also, again, from a personal perspective, but I think the greatest sin that we can commit is food waste. It is immoral, considering that we have so many people in the world that really struggle to get their hands on nutritious food every day. And if we sort of just waste it and have such little respect for food, of course, that's something that we also want to address in in this to some degree. Because we want to make sure that end consumers are always protected and always safe. But uh, at the same time, we have to be kind to our planet. And I think this move to minus 15 is actually that sweet spot between good for consumers and it's good for the planet. If I may jump in here, Mike. So, I mean, when I first heard about this move to minus 15 and you know, I started reading the research papers and learning more about cold chain, 
this thing that I found astounding were the numbers that kind of builds on what you guys just said, you know, learned that 12% of global food production is, is lost because of inappropriate temperature management. And if you take that 12% and translate this into nutritional value, it's actually enough to fit 1 billion people. And then when you look at, you know, places in the world like the Sub-Saharan Africa, that 12% actually grows to 37%. A lot of that may be because of the cultural considerations. You know, I've heard that people in that part of the world actually do prefer fresh produce over frozen produce. So, you know, there is quite, quite a bit of maybe culture change also required, which would be a little bit more than, than turning up the dial. But then, you know, making hot or cold is, is financially and environmentally expensive. Anything above that minus 12 degrees that Dirk referred to requires around 2 to 3% more energy. And, you know, if this project can reduce this financial burden or countries that really need cold chain, that would be absolutely fantastic. Massive energy savings. And I just want to finish this element of the conversation by just throwing in that I didn't actually say my wife ate that old food. She just gets us to eat it. So I don't want to give her a free pass on this podcast. <laughs> Beata, we see so many initiatives from supply chain companies about standalone decarbonization initiatives. Surely this type of collaboration is more likely to have sustained success than operating alone and doing these things alone. Yes, absolutely. Look, the, one of the reasons why I really enjoy working in the decarbonization space, you can say I've dedicated my, my entire career to, to decarbonization and energy transition, is that it's such a collaborative space. I mean, you see people who are fierce competitors coming together to solve the problem. Because in fact, climate change doesn't work in a way that if one company reduces all of their carbon emissions, gets to net zero, they will get to, you know, see the, the fruit of their efforts by avoiding all the climate change. So like one port is not going to see extreme weather events and the other one next to it will just because the first one decarbonized. It's absolutely a global problem. And it's not just talking about the, the climate change impact. Decarbonization is a system change. There is not one single company in the world that can entirely solve their own problem. And I think shipping is a, is a fantastic example where a shipping company needs someone to build that vessel. And then they also need someone to produce that new type of fuel, whether it's maybe methanol, hydrogen, ammonia, then you also need a port to bunker it. And you also need those people to talk together that the right ship comes to the right port, which has the right type of fuel for that vessel. And, you know, there, there, there's a multitude of, of such examples of system thinking in, in, in decarbonization. So indeed, collaboration is, is absolutely crucial, but it's, that's also what makes the, this space very exciting. Is there an element of gaining a competitive advantage that prevents collaboration at different points of the supply chain then? And, and if so, how do we get around this? I think there's a lot of things to consider here when you, when you talk about competitive advantage. First of all, as I said, in order to decarbonize, you need that system thinking and you need, you need different players along, along the value chain. Another thing that you need is, uh, is scale. Otherwise, the equipment that you would need to, to decarbonize would just be, you know, the cost of it would be just completely off the charts and you, you would never be able to recover that. One initiative that is seeing collaboration is the Zero Emissions Port Alliance, 
also known as Zipa, which was launched at COP28 by DP Weld and APM Terminals with the idea of creating an industry-wide strategic coalition with the goal of accelerating the journey to zero emissions for container handling equipment at port. What's the plan, Piotr, and will we see more companies getting involved? Sure, it's it's been a very exciting journey that we've been on with APM Terminals. It was probably about 12 months ago when APM Terminals reached out to us and they told us that they're working on this white paper around the tipping points uh, of battery electric container handling equipment. And we quickly realized that, that we're working on the same problem. We also realized that even though between the two of us, between DP World and APMT, we operate 130 terminals out of around 940 globally, we still do not necessarily have a sufficient scale to solve this problem on our own. Therefore, we decided that we're going to launch this alliance, the, the Zero Emission Ports Alliance, which will also bring other players into the mix. And these guys could be port operators, uh, original equipment manufacturers of different types of, of port equipment, but also government entities, knowledge partners, and I would say we're very open to, to, to players uh, within that sector because we do believe that this challenge can only be solved together. Can you briefly give listeners some insight into the types of innovations that Zipa is working on? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Zipa is currently focusing on four work streams. Uh, the first one is to encourage uh, the scale-up of, uh, of the production of things like battery electric container handling equipment. It was probably around two years ago when we made our first mass order for electric terminal tractors. And as a matter of fact, we couldn't get it delivered in time just because the production capacity back then wasn't there. I believe it has improved a lot since as original equipment manufacturers do continue building up their production capacities. But in order to, you know, have a shot at net zero emissions or achieving net zero in the ports industry, there's probably still a very long way to go. Building on that systems thinking, you know, getting the equipment in place is only the first step. So the second work stream of the Zipa is around the grid infrastructure, the shore power rollout, and all the elements that enable electric equipment to, to operate within a port environment. We're also looking at the cost of batteries and the cost of charging solutions. And then finally, we also want to work with the port authorities and with customers in order to uh, kind of enhance the, the implementation and kind of increase the, the, the uptake of such solutions. And there is a lot to discuss there. The Alliance itself is meant to run for the, for the next 12 months. So what's very important for us is to really focus on these specific four work streams, even though there's probably a lot of other things that we could talk about in decarbonization of ports. And if the Alliance were to extend beyond 12 months, we are very happy to, to tackle this, but we just want to keep this sprint. It's literally a 12-month sprint focused on, on these four work streams. Can you really achieve enough through those four key work stream objectives within that time frame, or will you, do you think you'll need longer? It seems like there's quite a few obstacles out there to adoption. There is, we'll do our best, you know, there, there there's probably things that we, we are very confident we can achieve, such as agreeing on, on a set of voluntary standards, but there's a lot of things that we, we will not be able to fix. So, you know, we'll use that 
12 month mark, which would be early 2025, to really look back what we have achieved and if it makes sense to continue with the alliance, expand on some of the work streams or even add new work streams that, that come along the way. Okay, to finish, to both of you, uh, aside from what we've already discussed, what other initiatives most excite you in terms of cutting supply chain emissions? And uh, secondly, if I may throw a little rider with this, uh, and I'm after your personal views here, is there anything else out there that companies could be doing that you consider low-hanging emissions wins, perhaps, that maybe they aren't now? Maybe there's something out there they can grasp. Like I'll jump in on that. Um I think there are many things that, that can be done and that we should should do. And, and I think this move to minus 15 is a great example of things that we've done that, that we didn't need to do. We didn't need to keep things as, uh, as cold as what it was. But what, what perhaps excites me the most about this is that it is so obvious. It excites me because it is, it's a mind shift change. It excites me that we need to do this together. No one owns this idea. No one is going to say this is only to us and we have a monopoly on this uh, on this initiative. As a matter of fact, it can only work if we all work together. And I think that's that's why we are so keen and also very pleased that, that it will be further discussed at the TPM in Long Beach. Um, and so watch out for Thomas Eskerson, who's been very much involved with us on the on this journey and has been able to help us also build our co coalition so far. But we want more companies and people to sign up and jump on this. That is the exciting bit to get us over the line. And it doesn't stop there. So once we have this broad-based coalition of companies that can work together on minus 15, who knows, maybe there are other grand and big initiatives that we can do together because that can only work if we do this uh, for ourselves and for, and I mean for ourselves in terms of humanity to make this change. And Piotr, same to you. What innovations are exciting you and where are the easy emissions cuts in our industry that we're currently not making or, or perhaps could do better? So let me start with the second part of your questions first. So I, I think there are three things in the ports and terminals industry that are available today and we should absolutely maximize while we are working on these, you know, more difficult things around deep decarbonization. And I think these three types of projects are, first of all, renewable electricity. You know, when you look at things like solar power, the costs have come down tremendously in the past decade or so. So I'm yet to see a power purchase agreement, you know, of the solar installation at the port, which would turn out to be more expensive per kilowatt hour than grid. So that's absolutely low hanging fruit. And I'm happy to say that at DP World today, we're already at 60% of renewable electricity consumption as a proportion of total uh, electricity consumption. The second one, it's an absolute no-brainer, is, is maximizing the efficiency. Things like driver training programs, and incentivizing your operators to be more and more efficient. There's still a lot that I think we can squeeze out without any capital investment. And then the last one that I believe, not in all locations, but there are selected locations where, where, where it's available, is, is drop-in biofuels. We already have second generation type of biofuels, which are certified to be net zero. You don't need any or any major changes to your equipment. You can still maintain the warranty of, of an OEM. 
That's something that we've been doing in Southampton for over a year now with really good impacts on carbon emissions. But these are the low-hanging fruits, you know. The, the work really starts from there as we move towards decarbonization and the net zero world where we really need to have full equipment changeover, right? Whether it's electric equipment or hydrogen equipment, maybe some type of a, of, of a hybrid equipment, that's when the difficult work starts. But also what excites me are all of these different partnerships and alliances that are forming. We talked about move to minus 15, we talked about ZIPA, but in fact, in the industry, there, there is a lot more. The two that we are a, we're strategic partners of are, first of all, the Merskin Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, which I think is one of the most prominent think tanks around maritime decarbonization. We're definitely getting a lot of value by collaborating with 24 strategic partners that are a part of the center, a lot of knowledge partners and mission ambassadors. And the second one is the World Economic Forum First and Worst Coalition. So that's something we have joined a couple of months ago. And the reason I find it exciting is that in order to join, we actually have to make a commitment. And we committed that we're going to decarbonize our shipping operations by 5% by 2030 by uh, using zero emission equipment. And we, we're working on it. We, we don't even have all of the solutions. We know that a big part of it will be powering our methanol vessels within our Unifeeder, which is a group company of, of DP World. But these vessels are only coming in 2026, and we still do not know where we're going to get the green methanol from. But hopefully by working with other coalition members of the First Movers Coalition, we will be able to locate these sources of new green, green types of fuels and, and push the market in the direction we, we needed to go to achieve net zero emissions. Piotr Konopka, Group Vice President for Global Decarbonisation and Energy Programmes at DP World, and Dirk Hoffman, DP World Account Director for Reefer Supply Chain Services. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar Podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Big thanks to DP World for supporting the Lodestar's independent journalism. A shout out to my editing team of Tom Matthews and Karen Ball. Big thanks to my wife, Kerry King, for for saving so much food and gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back on March the 7th with all the latest from TPM24 at Long Beach. Please do tune in. 